You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. thousand hymns. That's how many songs that Fanny Crosby wrote. Hymns with great depth and power. Songs you are probably familiar with like, To God Be the Glory. One of my favorites, probably my favorite hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. I love that song. He hideth my soul, redeemed, blessed assurance. I am thine, O Lord. We could go on and on and on with these wonderful hymns that Fanny Crosby wrote. Over 8,000 hymns. And did I mention she was blind? She did not have physical eyesight. But boy, she could see God. She had spiritual sight. And this morning, we're going to study a prayer where Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus that God would open the eyes of their heart, their spiritual eyes, that they might see God. And by extension, we're going to learn what that means for our lives. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful epistle, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, located in Asia Minor. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin reading verse 15. You found your place. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 1 verse 15, Paul writes, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened, That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, 
but also in the one to come. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we we pause in this moment to declare our dependence. We need you in this moment. And we ask, Lord, that as we study your word, you would move by the power of the Holy Spirit to grant us spiritual eyesight, to understand what you're saying, and, Lord, to have the, the inclination to take what you teach us and apply it to our lives. God, I pray that because we studied the Bible this morning, that our lives would be transformed individually and corporately for the glory and the fame of King Jesus, because it's all about him. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We've been studying a long sentence that we find at the beginning of this book, this first chapter, where Paul lists all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. We've been taking those spiritual blessings one by one. And now there's a shift, a transition in this letter where Paul begins to pray for the believers in Ephesus. In fact, a large portion of the book of Ephesians is Paul praying for them. And we have much to learn by the way that Paul prays and what he prays for. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to show you just a couple different aspects of Paul's prayer and then draw from it some truths that you and I need to grasp hold of. First of all, I want you to notice... Paul's thanksgiving. Look how he starts the prayer there in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I love that before Paul begins to ask God to do some things in their life, uh, lives, he pauses to thank God for what he's already done and is doing. Paul was a, was a man who prayed with great gratitude. Gratitude was always a part of his prayer life. And, and there are two things he's thankful for there in verse 15. First of all, he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. In, in other words, he's saying, I've heard that you have been saved, you've gathered together in a church, you are followers of Christ. I'm so grateful that you have come to know him. And for an interesting a study, I encourage you sometime to go and read Acts chapter 19, where you can see the beginnings of the church in Ephesus and see uh, the different people that were saved and became a part of this church. God was moving in remarkable, miraculous ways to to bring this church into existence. So he's thankful for their faith, but secondly, he was thankful for the evidence of their faith. Look what he says there in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your, what's the word there? What's the word? And your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. You know that Love is one of the chief characteristics of those who know Christ. 
Because we are called and commanded to love God and to love the, uh, our neighbor as ourselves. And so those that know Christ and are growing in Christ and following Christ and passionate about Christ will be characterized by, by love, an undeniable growing love in their lives. And Paul gets that and Paul says, I'm grateful that you're saved. I'm, I'm grateful now there's a, a New Testament Bible preaching church in Ephesus. And, and I'm grateful that you are demonstrating the reality of your faith by being filled with love. So Paul begins the prayer with thanksgiving. But notice, secondly, Paul's petition. What is Paul praying about here for these, these believers in Ephesus? Look what it says there in verse 17. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I love that in this prayer, Paul does not stop at the point of salvation. He doesn't say, I'm so grateful you're saved, and that's all I got for you today. Paul is grateful for their salvation, and he, he's overjoyed that they've come to know Christ. But now, listen, he wants him to grow and mature. Because Paul, listen, was not just after converts. He wanted to make disciples. And, and I think one of the, the dangers that we experience as the church in America is we're just grateful for converts. If someone says they're a Christian and they come into the church, we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, glad you're in. But we cease to follow up and invest in their spiritual life and spiritual journey so they can grow in Christ. And Paul's not satisfied with that. He's grateful that they're saved, but oh, he wants them to grow. He wants them to mature specifically in the knowledge of God. So how does he pray for these new believers? He's praying fervently because it says there in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So this is a, a consistent uh, prayer that Paul has for these Christians. And, and how does he pray for these new believers? Specifically that God, he calls them there the Father of glory, will give them a spirit of wisdom. I believe spirit there refers to the Holy Spirit. That God would, would work through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to do something in their lives that they might grow in wisdom. And as he asks for God to give these believers a, a spirit that matures them and leads them into deeper insight, he begins to pile up words. Paul does this often in his letters. He begins to use a lot of different words almost synonymously. First of all, he uses the word discernment uh, there in, I'm sorry, wisdom in verse 17. He says that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom. That word means discernment, seeing things from God's perspective. Then he says that God may not only give you wisdom, but of revelation. The word revelation means to unveil. That God would show you some things that you don't currently know. That God would teach you some things about him that you don't currently understand. That God would unveil truths for you in an ongoing manner. Then he uses the word knowledge. He mentions the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That word knowledge speaks of, of knowledge that's directed towards a particular object. In other words, I want you to know something about someone. 
Who's the someone? Look what he says. He says there, wisdom, revelation in the knowledge of him. Here's what he's praying. I'm praying that you believers in Ephesus would come to know God more. Know him in a deeper way. To have greater insight and discernment and wisdom into who God is and what God does and how God works in your life. And then to sum all of this up, we see that this is an eye-opening prayer. Because look at the next verse. He says, having, verse 18, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having your, your, your hearts open, the eyes of your heart open, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's saying there, I'm praying that God would open your spiritual eyes. Now, what is Paul indicating here? He's indicating, this is in your notes, that he wanted them to know so that they could grow. He wanted them to know so that they could grow. I want you to hear this. This is, this is vital for you to understand as a believer. We grow in Christ through a growing knowledge of God. Paul says it like this over in Romans chapter 12. He said, he prays that their, their minds would be transformed that their minds would be renewed, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of their mind. That's how Paul prays in Romans chapter 12. Because he knew that if if believers' minds are transformed, if, if believers' minds are renewed, then their actions are sure to follow. Change begins with what happens in our mind and in our heart, our knowledge of God. That's how change happens. So here's what, here's what it looks like in the Christian life. We as believers read our Bible. As we read our Bible and the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God and begins to take it and give us understanding and apply it to our lives, our minds are renewed. Our minds are transformed. And because our minds are being changed, our lives are being changed. Our actions will follow what we know. And so Paul's praying here, I pray that you would grow. But before you grow, you got to know. you got to know some things about God. So he prays for this wisdom and discernment and knowledge and having their, their, their eyes of their hearts opened. Now let me give you three thoughts about growth and spiritual awareness. First of all, growth and spiritual awareness leads to appreciation. If we're not careful, we can take our salvation and our relationship with God for granted. Amen? We find ourselves just kind of going through the motions and, and, and forgetting how glorious our relationship with God in Christ is. And we, we take these spiritual realities for granted. But when we grow in our knowledge, when our minds are being renewed and transformed, we, we appreciate God and what He's done through His Son. Growth and spiritual awareness also leads to adoration. We appreciate God's work and we begin to love God more 
and worship God more fully because we see and learn who God is and what He's done. And and then it leads to application. We begin to change based on what we know about God. As our minds are renewed, we apply that to our lives and it it changes the way that we live. We, We begin to mature in Christ. So this is significant. Paul is going to pray that their knowledge would grow in some different areas. We're going to look at those areas in a moment. But notice that Paul is not praying that God would give them these things he's praying for. He prays that they would become aware of what God has already given them. That's important. That they would come to a fuller knowledge of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved. They'd understand what is already theirs. Because if, if they understand what's already theirs, if we understand what is ours in Christ, it'll change the way we live. We, we often don't get it. How glorious it is to be saved. We take it for granted and lose sight of it. And Paul wanted these believers to know so that they could grow. Warren Wearsby tells a story about the great newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst. He was uh, an art aficionado. And Hearst was reading about this great work of art. And he had an extensive collection of art. And he wanted this piece in his collection, his personal collection. So he hired an agent and said, I want you to, I want you to find this piece of art. I, I want to buy it and include it in my collection. So the agent scoured the world and, and looked in different museums trying to find this painting. And after many months of searching, the agent came to Hearst and said, that great work of art you want, you already own it. It's in one of your warehouses now. In other words, Mr. Hurst didn't need more stuff. He needed to realize what he already had. Amen? And as Christians, we don't need, to God, we don't need God to give us more. He's given us everything in His Son. We just need to realize what we have in Christ. And that's how Paul's praying, God, open their eyes. Help them to understand what they have. Now I want to show you how this works. By looking at the particulars of Paul's request. Paul wanted them to grow in their awareness of three areas. First of all, he wanted them to grow in their awareness of hope. Hope. Look what he says there uh, back in... Verse 18. He's praying that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. He says that, they, that, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I'm praying you'll understand the hope that is already yours. The hope that you have because you know Jesus. That phrase, the, the hope of his calling or the hope to which he has called you refers to the hope that God calls us or invites us to be saved. I'm a Christian because God allowed me to hear the gospel. And through the gospel, I knew that I needed a, a Savior. And, and God began to draw my heart to himself. And, and when I was nine years of age, I heard about Christ. And I placed my faith in Christ and invited Christ into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior. 
I'm a Christian because God graciously called me. And it's the same with you if you know Christ. God called you through his gospel. And, and Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, listen, there's hope in that. You possess a hope that no one else does. The word hope in the Greek language is the, the, the word elpidos. And, it, and it does, the, the biblical word hope doesn't mean, you know, I hope so, like I crossed my fingers kind of hope. The, the, the biblical word hope means confident expectation. I've heard it defined as faith on its tiptoes. You're looking forward to what God's going to do because you know him personally. And so he mentions there that they would grow in their knowledge of the hope of his calling. If you're a Christian, you possess real hope. Real confident expectation. Because God has called you to be saved, you don't have to live in separation. You can know God personally. Because God has called you to be saved, you don't have to live with pessimism. You know God is in control. Because God has saved you, you don't have to live with uncertainty. You know you're going to heaven when you die. And that gives you real hope. One of my favorite definitions of hope is this. I'm not sure where it was originally pinned. But I think it's a great biblical definition. We have hope. Listen. When our past is redeemed, our present makes sense, and our future is secure. I like that. And because we've been called to salvation, because we are gloriously saved by Christ who shed his blood and rose from the grave so we could be forgiven and have eternal life, because we are saved, our past is redeemed, we've been forgiven, our present makes sense, we have meaning and purpose, and oh, when we die, where do we go? We go to heaven, amen? That is real hope. That is confident expectation. And notice Paul's not saying, God, give them more hope. He's saying, help them to understand the hope that they already have. And so he prays. They grow in their awareness of hope. Secondly, he, he prays they grow in their awareness of inheritance. Verse 18. Have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, we studied inheritance a little bit earlier in this chapter. It's all that God has prepared for us when we get to heaven. We looked at that in great detail. But notice that phrase, the riches of his glorious uh, inheritance. That, that phrase, riches, speaks of the surpassing worth of the inheritance. Paul wanted them to understand the worth, the value of what was waiting for them in eternity. He, he wanted them to think about heaven. We, we heard him of heaven this morning. Think about what it's going to be like when we all get to heaven and sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Matthew Henry, the English pastor and great commentator, wrote this. Let us endeavor then by reading, contemplation, and prayer to know as much of heaven as we can. 
that we may be desiring and longing to be there. Paul wanted them to think about their eternal inheritance so that they would have an eternal perspective. He wanted these, these believers in Ephesus to understand this world is not all that there is. This world is not your home. You have heaven in your future. You have an eternal inheritance. Understand what you have in Christ. Sometimes we get so caught up in what's happening on this earth and, 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 and we feel like that this is all that there is. Listen, we as Christians, this is not our home. We are just pilgrims passing through. Amen? He wanted them to understand that they were citizens of heaven. So he's saying, I pray you would grow in your comprehension of your inheritance. I, I, I want you to think about heaven more. Christians should be excited about heaven. And that's how he prays. But third, he prays they would grow in awareness of their hope, of their inheritance, but third, of their power. Look in verse 19. This is so good. He says... Have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now notice, Paul's not saying, God, give them power. He's saying, give them greater awareness of the power you've already given them. Give them greater awareness of the power that is already theirs. Look at the words that Paul uses to try to describe God's power. And again, he begins to pile up words here and uses some words as, or in a synonymous way. First of all there, in verse 19, he says... What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? That word power is the word dunamis, is uh, where the word dynamite comes from. It's a, it was a general word in the first century that was used for power of all kinds. And he says this is the greatness of his, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That word working is the word energeon. It's where we get the word energy from. It speaks of the energizing force of God. God's activity, God's work in our lives. And he says, according to the working of his great might. That word great is the word kratos. It can be translated uh, 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 strength. It refers to the power to overcome what stands in the way. And then he uses the word might. Kratos. A similar type word that speaks of God's power and strength. And so here's what, here's what Paul is saying. If you know Christ, God has given you his dunamis, his power, his working, his strength, his might. It's all yours. It all belongs to you. And I love in verse 19 that word immeasurable. It's immeasurable power. Uh, the word there is uperbalon. Uh, balon is the word for throw. So think about throwing something as far as you can throw it. And Paul's saying God's power is beyond that. Think of the greatest, greatest thing you can think of about God's power. 
Think the greatest thoughts you can think about the power of God. His power is beyond that. that. That's his point. Immeasurable power. And he's saying here, it's, it's, it's yours in Christ. This power is at your disposal. Now, he uses a couple illustrations here to help us to understand how great this power is. The first illustration is the resurrection. Look in verse 20. He says, This power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, is that same power, look at verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So this power that belongs to those who are Christians is resurrection power. And I would submit to you, that's great power. Amen? Jesus Christ displayed power over death itself when he was raised and walked out of his tomb. And he's saying that resurrection power is the power you possess. And then he uses another illustration, the exaltation. Look what he says in verse 20. It says, it's that power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's saying there that God displayed his power by seating Christ at the right hand. The right hand was the place of honor and authority. And this, these verses tell us that God placed Jesus above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's none higher, none greater, none more powerful, none more authoritative than King Jesus. Why? God has raised him up and given him that position. Jesus is more powerful than anything or anyone else. So Paul's saying... This is the kind of power I'm talking about. It's resurrection power and exaltation power. Now let me show you a stunning verse. Look in verse 19. Look what he says. So I'm praying that you would grow in your awareness of the immeasurable greatness of of his power. And look at this next phrase. Stun- this, this phrase is stunning. Toward us who believe. You know what Paul's saying? The resurrecting, exalting power of God has been directed toward you as a believer in Christ? It is God's power for you. It is God's power that you possess. He has, he has directed his power toward your life. Resurrection power, exaltation power. It's yours if you're a Christian. That's what Paul says in this chapter. The resurrection, exaltation power of God is at our disposal. So here's the question. Why do we live powerless lives? Why do we let Satan have his way in our lives and in our 
marriages and in our homes, in our churches. Why do we live in spiritual defeat? Why is our witness so anemic and weak? Why do we lack spiritual courage and stamina? Why do we find so many Christians and churches just going through the religious motions? I would submit to you that many Christians and many churches are living out a powerless existence because they do not understand God's power has been given to them. They don't understand what they already have in Christ. People are looking for spiritual experiences, looking for God to do certain things in their life, and they neglect to realize God has taken His resurrection exaltation power and directed it toward those who believe. You see, we do not understand the power of God that is available. That is ours. If we would but surrender all to God. And let Him have His way in our lives. And, and that's where the rubber meets the road, right? You can live a powerful life, a spiritually powerful life, with resurrection, exaltation, power overflowing. If you will but surrender all to God and let Him have His way in your life. God will not empower self. But he will empower surrender. He will work through surrender to take that power that is latent in your life as a believer and cause it to fill up and to overflow and to change the way that you live. God will do that. One small detail. You've got to surrender all. You gotta let the Holy Spirit have his way. You gotta desire that God would do something new and fresh in your life. The power's there. Will you let God have his way and bring it to bear in your life in practical, daily ways? So here's the conclusion. Our great need is not to receive more from God. Have you, have you seen this? You're looking for spiritual treasure everywhere. Think about what you already have. Hope. Inheritance. Power. Our great need is to grow in our spiritual awareness of what we already have. We need our spiritual eyes open. We need to be like Fanny Crosby. 
physical sight is not the main thing. For Fanny Crosby, she saw God with the eyes of her heart. She was growing in her knowledge and comprehension of who God is and what God had done and what God was doing in her life. When we come to when we come to the Lord with teachable hearts, the Spirit opens our eyes to give us understanding and inclination. Our mind is renewed and we become more and more like Jesus as we live for His glory. This is an eye-opening prayer. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.